You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, Robert and I sit down to chat with Simon Erickson about Reddit and the Wall Street Bets movement. What is happening in China with the crackdown on tech companies? What's going on in the semiconductor industry and why it's important, as well as other emerging industries? We wrapped up the show by chatting about a firm's business model, competitive advantages, and their brilliant CEO, Max Levchin. Simon Erickson is the founder and CEO of Seven Investing and a former lead advisor at The Motley Fool. Simon's team at Seven Investing has seven advisors searching for the very best opportunities in the stock market, and his team has a 10-year track record of investing success. They're constantly researching the important trends that are changing entire industries. So Simon is very well-versed when it comes to disruption. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Simon as much as Robert and I did. Without further delay, let's dive right into this week's episode with Simon Erickson. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Robert Leonard. And as I mentioned in the introduction, we have the great pleasure of being joined by Simon Erickson. Welcome to the show, Simon. Clay, I am excited and honored to be interviewed by you on the show today. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. So when I heard that you were going to be my first guest on the podcast, I was very excited to say the least. As a listener of the show, I enjoyed learning from your insights on how you think about investing and where you see the future going in some of the industries we're going to talk about today. Now, you've been on the podcast twice previously. Those are episodes 40 and 88 for listeners who would like to refer back to those. For those who are newer listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Well, I like long walks on the beach and I'm in Aries, <laughs> just messing with you. You know, it's, uh, my story is kind of, I, I started as an engineer, Clay. I was a chemical engineer that kind of transitioned into a technical sales role. So rather than swatting mosquitoes in the middle of a chemical plant in Texas, it was going out and traveling and staying in that same courtyard Marriott every single night, four nights a week. But the interesting eye-opening part of it was I got to see what was innovative, what people were working on out there. Every company wants to stay a step ahead of its competitors and develop new products. And so we were selling the specialty chemicals that were becoming a part of that. Did that through most of my 20s, went back and got an MBA in entrepreneurship, actually, split between entrepreneurship and finance. I wanted to get into the renewable energy industry. And so I worked for a large oil company that had a renewable energy strategy. And so I worked on the venture capital team, you know, the strategy and development team, went out and we acquired companies that would bring their technology in. We'd use it to build solar plants all around the world. Really interesting stuff. But I also, after that, I said, hey, I think that I want to be an investor. I want to look at things from the outside rather than the inside. So rather than building these programs, I wanted to say, okay, how can I assess a company, figure out how they're progressing, where their future lies, if they're doing the right things? And so I joined The Motley Fool and I worked there for seven years, ran a couple of services for them, mostly looked at innovative aspects of the market and finding the companies are taking advantage of those. And Clay, my most exciting part of my career actually started last March, in uh, March of 2020, when we launched Seven Investing. And I got to team up with several of the other lead advisors that I greatly respect. Seven of us now are finding our very, very top ideas in the stock market each and every month and packaging them into a subscription product. So it's been a lot of fun. I've seen a lot of neat things out there. And uh, kind of always the focus has been reading the tea leaves of what the next big innovative thing is going to be. 
Simon, how did you make the transition from a corporate job into an investing job? I get asked that a lot from people, whether they're brand new out of college going in, trying to get an investment job, or they're already working a job that they had to take because they couldn't get into an investment role, or they just decided that they have a passion for investing and they want to make a switch. And personally, I've seen how hard it is to get a job in the investment world. So I'm curious how you made the transition from what you were doing in the corporate world into an investment role. Best piece of advice by far is go all in on whatever you want to do. Whether you want to go back in MBA, if you do that, go all in and do full time. If you want to switch from corporate job to an investing job, go all in and do your research and your homework before you even get into the interview. I mean, like it's a very hyper competitive world out there today, especially in the investing world. But I think that for any industry, if you're willing to do your homework, be very thorough, but also show the passion for what you're doing and saying, hey, I really like this. This is what I want to spend all my time doing. It really is a huge advantage for anyone who does that. Did you learn anything from when you were in your corporate job that has helped you become a better investor? Is there anything you can take from that time as a full-time employee to put into your investing process, strategy, thesis building? Yes, absolutely. One of the biggest ones that's under followed is company culture. And by culture, this is an interesting side conversation. I won't spend too much time on it, but we typically think of culture as like how happy people are, or like if there's free coffee and donuts in the break room or people are smiling every morning. I'm like, truly that's important. But the more important part of culture is how a company makes decisions. Every company out there has a scarcity of resources and a scarcity of people. And they have to make decisions on how they're going to allocate projects to what people want to do. How do you get people on the same page for things? How do you spend your money? How do you go after bigger opportunities? Corporations think about that generally very different than entrepreneurs do in terms of risk, in terms of safety, in terms of how many people they have in a workforce, or in terms of the processes they already have in place. It's been eye-opening to see the difference between corporate America and working for two of the, the Fortune 10 like I have, and then also seeing it completely from the other side of being an entrepreneur that started from square one with zero revenue on day one of when we started Seven Investing. So anyway, kind of a side conversation perhaps, but it's definitely a, a different perspective for both of those. Simon, I'll frequently have people reach out to me and ask about specific companies that are very popular on Reddit and the Wall Street Bets forum. This year, that has been companies like GameStop and AMC. This whole movement really took off at the beginning of 2021 and still seems to have many people involved. I'm curious what your take is on the situation and what you tell people that are asking about investing in these companies. Well, first and foremost, I, I'm not dismissive of Wall Street bets or Reddit. I think that I've seen a lot of commentary that just think this is a bunch of dumb kids that don't know what they're talking about. And, and I don't believe that at all. I think that there is something to the power of crowdsourcing ideas and communities where those ideas can be shared and the, the good ideas bubble up. That's exactly what I think is behind what's going on at Reddit. And of course, Wall Street bets and GameStop and AMC have become the quintessential examples of this. But the idea behind this was some very analytical work was done saying, hey, there's some short seller manipulation of these thinly traded stocks. These are companies that don't have really any catalysts on the near-term horizon that if you want to pick up a little bit of extra money, you know, betting against these companies like so many institutions were doing, uh, there really was no reason not to do that. You know, GameStop as a bricks and mortar retailer of video games for the most part, wasn't going to go out and quadruple its revenue year over year. And what they realized is if they did have, again, thinly traded stock, a significant retail presence, a, a lot of money that was going into this from retail investors, that could be the hidden catalyst that pushed these stock prices higher. So there is something to this. I certainly am not dismissive of what's going on. I just think that from my perspective, it's far too short-term focused. At the end of the day, GameStop or AMC or any of these companies that have now escaped the short-term manipulation that they've undergone from institutional investors still have to prove they have a viable, sustainable business. And if you can you know, have a stock price that goes up 10x in a quarter, that's great. But then you've got to prove yourself the quarter after that and the year after that and the five years after that. Otherwise, it's just a question of who's stuck holding the bag when the stock corrects the other way. And you know, if in a crater's 50 to 70%, did you get in at the bottom or the top? There's no way to know because the fundamentals don't support those valuations. So I'm kind of between uh, rock and a hard place on this one, Clay. I, I certainly think there's power to what Reddit's doing. And I think community is great 
for individual investors to share ideas with one another, but we should be doing it in a kind of sustainable long-term way rather than just trying to jump in and out within a couple of weeks or a couple of hours. Yeah, I agree that it's really good that people are talking about investing and they're interacting and getting ideas from each other. I'm just not so sure that investors should be allocating a large portion of their portfolio towards these types of investments for the reasons you just mentioned. So for some people, Reddit or the Wall Street Bets Forum might be where they get their investment information entirely. If they would like to learn more about stock investing and how to determine what makes a good investment, where would you recommend they go? The Millennial Investing Podcast, of course. You know, in addition to y'all's show, which is fantastic, I really would encourage people to check out all the free content we have on 7investing.com. We have a lot of free articles. We have a podcast. We have a live stream, but we're also opening up a Discord community forum next week, which will be available to the public for people to bring in their stock ideas and have them kind of bounced around with other investors. I think that the power of community is very strong. We want to encourage people to say, hey, this is a safe place where I can bring my ideas. What do you guys think about company XYZ? That's not just this. I would say a lot of social media platforms have succumbed to overly promotional hyping their own companies. Maybe they've got personal interest in it and they're just trying to get a lot of people to buy it so that they can gain. I don't want that. I want an objective research-based community. And that's what we're trying to build. We want 7investing to be for a lot of people as well. I want to talk about another topic like GameStop AMC that's been pretty popular lately. And that's what's happening in China. We've seen a recent crackdown on Chinese companies like Alibaba and Tencent, which has led to a significant pullback in these stocks in 2021. Tell us about what exactly is happening with these companies and the Chinese government. Regulations are erratic in China. You don't really know what's going to happen as an investor. And the lack of stability means there's a lot of risk. And of course, risk is the ultimate enemy of institutional investors who don't want to get phone calls from their clients saying, what happened to my money and why did this stock drop 20% today? So China has got a huge opportunity, of course, you know, billion and a half people. It's discovering technologies just like America is discovering technologies. It's a leader on the global stage in AI right now, to mention its biotech industry and its insurance reimbursements for healthcare are innovating quickly. But again, you've got the uncertainty of what's going to happen if a company goes all in like a Silicon Valley company would do in America. It's almost a backlash if you do something the Chinese government does not want you to do over there. Let's use Jack Ma as a perfect example of this, right? Jack Ma is incredibly innovative. He is a hustler. He is a guy that's very aggressively developing technologies and he's used those to build the most successful e-commerce platform with Alibaba out there in China. But as we saw, he wanted to spin off Ant Financial through an IPO earlier, just within the last 12 months here. And Chinese government came back and said, you know, hey, we don't really appreciate some of the things that you're saying out there. He was very controversial with the government on his stance on bribes, on his stance on regulations, on his stance on suppressing innovation. And if you followed the Ant Financial story, it's basically pulled the IPO and the government has silenced Jack Ma from speaking in a way that, that's controversial or critical of the policies that they have. They want to preserve control. They don't want to have China become Silicon Valley like we saw in America. And so we have to taper a lot of the expectations. When we say, oh, this is going to be the Google of China, this is going to be the Amazon of China, it's not. China is completely different and the consumer preferences are very different over there and the regulations are very different over there. Now, is it still a big opportunity when you have 1.5 billion people? Yes. But I think that we need to be very mindful of the fact that at any time, your investment is not safe over there. You don't have really any control over what the government's going to be doing, especially as an individual foreign investor in, in these companies. So kind of split. I see a lot of opportunity. Robert, I think there's technologies catching on in, in China. There's a bunch of brilliant researchers over there. But it's very different rules than we've gotten used to, at least in the American stock exchange here. I very much agree with what you're saying about China. There may be really good opportunities, and some Chinese companies may be attractively priced relative to the US, but there is always that risk that the Chinese government is going to do what they believe is in their best interest, and that might not align with your best interest as an investor in those companies. The bottom line is that the Chinese government has a huge influence in how these companies operate and how profitable they will be. Given what you know about how the Chinese government operates, do you invest in Chinese companies personally? 
Uh, yes, I do. To answer the question directly, I've changed quite significantly over the past decade on how I think about China. If you asked me that question about 10 years ago, I would say, yes, look at how quickly these small cap Chinese companies are growing. And don't you want a piece of the innovation that they're tying into? Because you can get a 10-bagger on these stocks. There is no way I would do that today. I, and in fact, I lost a lot of money on a lot of those bets on very small Chinese small cap companies. But I think that really, in my opinion, this is always a risk reward question, right? The risks are elevated, but the valuations have that baked in. If you look at Alibaba, you look at Tencent, I mean, these are massive companies that have got investments in several companies within China and also outside of China too. They place their bets accordingly and they know how the government operates over there. So if you're going to invest in Chinese companies, do so recognizing that the risks are high, but the valuations more than reflect that in my opinion right now. I'm not putting 100% of my portfolio in these companies, but I am allocated to several of the big tech conglomerates that they have over there. I think they're going to be just fine in 10 years. What I've learned is really important, both from hosting this podcast, also from reading books, talking to as many investors as I have, is not so much taking somebody's opinion and running with it, but more so learning from them about how they think about something. So hearing that you invest in China, that doesn't necessarily mean somebody listening to the show has to run out and invest in China. What I think is more important is to learn about how you think about that. And so there's a bunch of super investors out there who some who really invest in China a lot and really like it. And then there's others who are completely against it. And then there's somebody like you who is also for it. If somebody's analyzing a company in China, how do they need to think about that differently than they do in the US? How is the analysis of the company different? How do they need to think about the risks differently than they do in the US? Yeah. I mean, again, I think it goes back to the uncertainties of the unknowns, right? You've seen Kathy Wood from ARK pull out of investing into new companies in China. You've seen Masayashi-san, you know, SoftBank's chief investment officer, who's notoriously a growth style investor, right? And even he, who's bet on companies with a hundred year plan in place, saying there's too much uncertainty for me to put money into these companies, even the large tech companies in China. If you're thinking about investing in China, you're seeing the opportunity and the technologies arise, and you're welcoming the uncertainties of government regulations. And the impact of that on companies is going to be, in my mind, it's going to impact the operating profit line, right? Like the new data security laws that China has. Every tech company in China now got to have these processes in place to make sure that they're not going to be exposed to cybersecurity attacks. They're talking about from America, just like America has got similar restrictions against Huawei. The TikTok, you know, stuff like that. This was all ByteDance. All of this was kind of a chess match between cybersecurity protections with tech companies. And China's going through the same thing. They're going to put all of their tech companies through the same paces. They're going to have to abide by the regulations and their bar is going to be high for those. But at the end of the day, they're going to abide. They're going to do what the government tells them to do. And it's going to cost them money to do that. So if you're a big tech company, but your question, which I think is, you know, what types of companies do you want to invest in? I would not invest in a small cap company that might not be able to abide by those costs that are required for the regulations that the government's pushing on me. But if you're Tencent, if you're Alibaba and the government says, you got to do this now, they're going to say, okay. You know, if you're Tencent and your empire is built upon gaming and digital gaming, the government says, okay, censorship is now higher than it was before. Or you know, anyone under 18 in China can only play video games three hours a, a week now. You're going to say, okay, and you're going to adapt to that. And they might change it again in a year or two years. And then you're going to adapt to that too. And of course, that's going to cost you in terms of revenue or in terms of your expenses. But at the end of the day, companies that can adapt and can afford to adapt to that, there's still 1.5 billion people out there that you have a market that's addressable. It's just a matter of you know, how much is it going to cost you and how frustrating is this going to be for someone like Jack Ma, who wants to innovate and do things at his terms, but he's still got kind of his hands tied in so many different ways. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. When you sit down at your computer and you're about to start your analysis on a company, let's say you have one Chinese company and you have one US-based company. Are there different metrics that you're looking at for each company or is the analysis the exact same? And then what are those metrics that you're looking at? I mean, so much of this is the digital world now, right? We have got a completely different way of analyzing companies than we did in the the turn of the year 2000, because it's been more and more focused on recurring revenue and software as a service. And that's why you see these metrics like net dollar retention rates coming out, average annual recurring revenue, average contract sizes, all of these kind of things are with the understanding and the expectation that you're going to have 90% plus retention rates in a recurring model. That's how the entire tech world operates these days. It's like it's a land and expand model. Get in there, get some big customers, get more and more sustainable. Enterprise focused for the most part. A lot of it is is consumer focused, but mostly enterprise focused. And when I think of China as well as Southeast Asia, it's more consumer focused in my opinion. You see stuff like C Limited. You think of things like Grab Holdings, which is coming public now through a SPAC, $35 billion deal. I'm like, they are building from the ground up. How do they approach consumers? sometimes in a bunch of different countries. What do they want? What is important to them? How do they culturally buy things? How do their drivers make money? You know, how do you build out a logistics infrastructure? You know, so much of that is different when you think about Southeast Asia and China and how the companies are approaching it. And I think that might be the opportunity for investors to build something from the ground up, recognizing and respecting that regulations are going to be there and it might change and there might be some curveballs that hit there here and there. But just like Amazon kind of built from being a bookstore and now is an e-commerce powerhouse and Netflix built from people wanting to watch DVDs and get them delivered to them by mail. And now you can stream everything to your living room. I mean, there's an opportunity internationally to build several of these markets from the ground up and you're seeing the winners emerge. And if there is any similarity, I think, between the United States and, and other countries, it is that companies get stronger, especially when they have more data as a competitive advantage to make tweaks and changes that they see. Very exciting, in my opinion, not only in China, not only in Southeast Asia, but also in South America and India. I think we're going to see a lot of emerging market winners arise that return 10 times your investment uh, over the next five or 10 years. We're hearing a lot about supply chain issues and shortages across many industries, many different types of products and services. But one you're well-researched in is semiconductors. So talk to us a bit specifically about how and what is happening with the semiconductor industry and why it's so important. Yeah. Okay. So Robert, say that you have a semiconductor fabrication facility. You have a fab, you have a place that is manufacturing the chips that are the highest performing chips in the world. And traditionally, you've served smartphone companies, and you've served automotive companies, and you've served some industrial customers too, right? But the problem is when COVID happened last year, 
several of those industries really completely cut their contracts and their demands with you, right? Like let's say you're an automaker and you said, hey, we're not going to hit our forecast because nobody's going out and buying cars right now. Everybody's hunkering down. So we need to stop the volumes that we had in place with you, Mr. Fabrication of the semiconductors that were going into our cars. And he said, okay, fine. No problem. Great. We're around when you need us again. But in the meantime, you don't have your fab sitting idle. You go out and you find other companies that want to fill that demand. You go out and you work with Tesla because EVs, electric vehicles, have 10 times as many semiconductor chips in them as internal combustion engine traditional vehicles do. And say, okay, great. Mr. Elon Musk, come right in. We've got some supply waiting for you. You go out and you work with Internet of Things providers. We want to have everything connected to the internet now and sensors connecting everything that we can take data off of. And you say, okay, we need semiconductor chips for those. Let's fill some capacity with that. You find these innovative pockets of the market that need high-performance chips. And if you can provide those, you take on that demand. And now we come back. Here we are about a year and a half later from the outbreak of COVID, at least in America, March 2020, call it. And the companies like Toyota are saying, hey, we're ramping back up now. Can you make us the chips that we need for the driver assistance package of our vehicles or for the console, for the dashboard, for the audio and the entertainment? And they say, yep, great. But now, you know what? You're in the back of the line again. We've got to meet all these other demands from the customers that filled the gap during COVID. And so I think that you're kind of seeing, certainly the manufacturers of those chips are supply constrained right now. That's why you see Samsung building a new facility in Austin, Texas, that's going to cost tens of billions of dollars. You see Taiwan Semiconductor putting a $100 billion CapEx plan in place for the next three years, which is almost unheard of for any industry, in my opinion. But at the end of the day, there's only so much supply that can go around. And the people that are going to be able to willing to pay the highest prices and have the contracts in place that are at the front of the line, which are the smartphone companies right now, they're going to get first dibs on that. They get to, they get to drink first on this. And everyone else, they're going to get what they can. Toyota has slashed its production forecast globally by 40% for two months in a row now. And that's not going to just suddenly ramp back up next month. It takes time to bring capacity online. If you are a production manufacturing engineer in the semiconductor industry and you live in Arizona right now, you're probably going to double your salary over the next two years. There is so much demand. This is not just a cyclical thing. This is a step change because AI. And the processing that's required for machine learning is so computationally heavy. This is a new normal for the semiconductor industry. And it's very exciting for the companies that design and also the companies that manufacture those high-performance chips. Sounds like some specific employees are pretty well positioned to benefit from this chip shortage. But who else? What other companies specifically are you see as benefiting from what's going on in the semiconductor industry? And then on the other side, whether it's companies, employees, anybody in the situation, who do you see as being most negatively affected? Moore's Law pushed down the pricing of semiconductor chips for the past 50 years, right? We could more densely pack integrated circuits with transistors. And so it, it drove down the costs. And this kind of led to the personal computing you know, wave that you know, unlocked all the opportunities for Intel and all the opportunities for AMD. And then all of a sudden, you had a PC on everybody's desk. And all of a sudden, data centers you know, push the prices down for those even further. And now all of a sudden, everything is built in the cloud. But the people who say that Moore's Law is dead are pointing out that these are getting really, really small. The nodes, the process technology nodes are now five nanometers or smaller. These are tiny. This is so tiny. And the lithography that's required for the production of these super complex chips is getting incredibly difficult. I'm of the believer that Moore's Law is not dead. It's just getting really, really hard. And so even the world's largest semiconductor companies, the Intels of the world, are having a challenge to make anything that's less than seven nanometer chips. The super, super, super small transistors that are allowing a chip to be more and more computationally capable, there's only a handful of companies that can do them. Samsung and Taiwan Semiconductor are the only ones that have reliably shown an ability to produce less than seven nanometer chips. And so if you're Apple and you need your smartphones to be better every single year and more and more impressive semiconductors that can handle that demand, you go to a couple of companies to do that. Samsung's developing this for their own internal production. Intel wants to do this for US technology companies' production. But Taiwan Semi, in my mind, is a huge winner from this as the world's only pure play foundry that can handle this kind of computing. 
And so I think that there's just going to be a flood of demand that goes to them for the production of these chips. And then the second one that really catches my attention right now is a lesser known company. It's Dutch. It's called ASML. Not as followed because it's a niche specific company. What they are doing is they're producing a lot of the capital equipment that's going into the lithography and the etching of those chips. So Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung are customers of this company because they're making these massive machines called extreme ultraviolet lithography machines, UOV, if you want to call them those. They're costing $150 million and they've got two years of backlog already in place. So they can't make them fast enough to keep up with these capacity expansions. I mean, a company like that has got Basically, it can't hire people fast enough to keep up with what it wants to do. And a stock like that is priced at a premium as it should be. But again, it's a question. It's not Facebook. You can't flip the switch and serve 40% more ads when you make an algorithm tweak. It's you've got to train people and you've got to get your own logistics in place, your own supply chain in place to do something like that. But again, the demand for something like that is extreme. I mean, Extreme UV is necessary for anything that's less than seven nanometers. And of course, the world's most complex computing is being done as Moore's Law. It gets more and more complex, more and more challenging. I mean, this is a company that's going to be, it probably will have a 10 or 20 year demand in place starting from today, and no one's going to catch it. That's incredible. Just some of the figures and numbers that you're bringing up around these companies. Do you think the labor shortage is playing a factor in any of this? Absolutely. Clay, let's just for the fun of it, go out there and apply for jobs in Arizona and say that you know we've got expertise in semiconductor manufacturing. See, what, see how many zeros are on the check they get offered to you. There's only so many people that can do this kind of work. It's extremely challenging. Basically, if there's any dust or any particle or anything that gets into these fabs, it's going to completely disrupt the entire fabrication of, of all of these chips. I mean, stuff like this is super, super specialized. It has to be done in a vacuum extreme focus on safety, extreme expertise from the people that do these kinds of things. But it just shows you, if you are that person and you're willing to work for these kinds of companies, yeah, there's a huge opportunity right now. Another industry I wanted to discuss today is the space economy. I can't say I know too much about this industry, but I've seen investors like yourself and Kathy Wood at ARK Invest show interest in it. Could you give us an overview of what the space economy is and what types of companies are involved? The space economy for decades had basically only one customer. It was the U.S. government. And it was NASA that wanted to you know, have taxpayer-funded missions that would accomplish something that would progress research. And then that would bleed down into the private sector through things like GPS that would be adopted. And now GPS is used for Uber navigating cars and delivering food to people's houses. But it was really cool, but there wasn't really a whole lot of commercial opportunity for this. But there has been an order of magnitude decrease in just the past couple of years by order of magnitude, 10 times less cost of launching satellites into space because rockets are now reusable, because there's miniaturization of the electronic components that are going into satellites. We've cracked the code on a lot of this. And so things that might have a couple of years ago Cost $30,000, $50,000 per kilogram to launch into space. Now, SpaceX and Elon Musk can bring it up there to you for $2,000 a kilogram. But there are strings attached that even Elon's launches are not always on your terms. You kind of have to do ride share where you say, okay, Clay, yeah, I can bring you up into space, but you've got to buddy along with Robert here and we're going to bring all of them at the same time. You're going to have 100 other people that are wanting to launch things. And by the way, here's the, the orbital plane that we're going to go to, and you've got to wait till the bus gets off at your bus stop. But it's cheap. You know, if you previously had no opportunity whatsoever to do that, you now have an opportunity to launch a satellite into space. I think the more interesting piece of the space economy is going to be dedicated launch, where it's not just rideshare and it's not just on the Falcon Heavy rocket that Elon has available. It's going to be something like a rocket lab where you can have a dedicated launch specifically for you if you can come up with $5 million. But it's going exactly where you want it to be. And by the way, they'll also maintain all the infrastructure. So you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You can just work on your application that you want to have a satellite out in outer space to do. And what is that? You know, This is kind of the fascination of entrepreneurship. This is what I've dedicated my career to seeing what is next in line that entrepreneurs are excited about doing. Richard Branson is really excited about showing the world that he's floating around in zero gravity and how awesome 
you know, his company is, how awesome Virgin Galactic is. Elon Musk is going to use satellite internet as a cash cow for him to get to Mars. That's what he really, really wants to do. Jeff Bezos wants to have these floating, living things orbiting around the earth where people can live on one day. You know, something like that is fascinating for, for these billionaire entrepreneurs who had no way possibly to even think about this 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Now their creativity is being unleashed and the economics are getting to be actually feasible for them to start doing things like this. And just like we saw cloud computing kind of reduce the cost for companies to launch software and have Amazon host your software for you, where you didn't have to build out all the storage capacity, didn't have to build out all the processing and all the servers and all the IT infrastructure for stuff like that. Amazon just took care of that. We're going to see in the next five, 10 years, all that infrastructure and space is going to be there for you, Mr. Entrepreneur, to go get it and go figure out a business model that makes sense. Kind of an exciting time for the space economy. One of the things you do at 7investing, Simon, is you guys send out monthly research reports on individual stock picks. If you don't mind sharing, what are a couple of the companies or maybe industries that you're most excited about right now? We've talked about a bunch of them. We've talked about space. We've talked about semiconductors. It could be outside of those companies or industries, but what are you most excited about right now and why? Well, Robert, I, I do have to keep the picks themselves behind the paywall. That is something that out of respect for my paying subscribers, I can't reveal the actual names of the companies. But please come sign up if you'd like to see them. Uh, we have them available for everybody. But I will say, to answer your question, the, the last two picks that I've had have been in space economy, and we just chatted about that one. And then it also uh, recently was the ad tech industry. Advertising is really undergoing kind of this huge change right now where traditionally the highest rates for advertisements were in linear television, which was regional, right? If you lived in Florida, you'd have Florida companies, Florida-based companies that wanted to appeal to Florida-based consumers. They'd say, okay, generally we want to put this advertisement up on cable TV station, maybe local advertising. There's handshakes that were being done for directly doing stuff like that. The ad tech industry though, is kind of evolving like Google has for the internet, where now there's exchanges that can use algorithms to facilitate those handshakes. And you can just specify if you're an advertiser, I want to spend this much money and I want it to appeal to this type of audience. And we're getting enough information about websites, podcasts, about connected television stations through streaming and other places that we know enough about who those audiences are that are watching those stations or visiting those websites or listening to podcasts. There's kind of a connect the dots being done in, in, in advertising. What's that going to look like? Well, it's going to be very interesting. I think it's going to follow kind of like the banner ads that we've seen Google facilitate for the internet. It's now expanding into a whole bunch of different other platforms like we just discussed. And that's going to have a lot of implications for the advertising industry. If people listening to the show have been intrigued by any of the companies, industries, or opportunities that we've talked about in the episode today, now maybe they have too many things to pick between. How do you narrow it down? How do you think about capital allocation? How do you think about portfolio construction, your position sizing, things of that nature? And why is it so important for investors? Capital allocation is one of the most important topics in all of investing. It's not really a sexy topic for a lot of people. I'm sure that at least a couple percentage of the people listening to this program, their eyes might have glazed over when I said capital allocation, might be falling asleep as we go into this topic. But it's incredibly important because there's two parts of capital. Capital allocation is how do you spend your money or how do you invest your money? It's the same idea from a business perspective or from an investor's perspective. To the question you just asked, this is for an investor, what kind of company is a 8% stake in your portfolio versus a 0.5% stake in your portfolio? If you're going to go take a flyer on a, on a Chinese high-risk tech company that's a small cap, you might not want that to be a 10% stake in your portfolio. You might want to have a very small bet that you place on that. Whereas if you see a company that you think is protected from risks and you can sleep well at night having a greater portion of your portfolio allocated to that, all of that is very personal. We don't try to tell people how they should invest their money. That's personalized financial advice. And of course, we don't do that with 7investing. We basically just say, hey, here's the types of companies we're looking at. Is this a high-risk company? Is this a low-risk company? Who might this be a good fit for? And then we pass the torch to you to make a decision on. The other piece of capital allocation, though, is the business side of capital allocation. 
which is if you do have a business that's producing cash flows or profits, how are you using those? Are you putting them all right back into growing the business like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos do, where they just flood their company with R&D? And Elon says, hey, great, we're going to do space internet stuff now. Hey, now we're going to implant chips into people's brains or Hyperloop or anything that Elon, Elon has got a zillion ideas that he always just goes all in on. Tesla was a perfect example of it, by the way. Tesla, he had a less than 10% chance he thought that Tesla would be successful, but Elon put all of his money to almost the threat of his own personal bankruptcy into Tesla to make it succeed. But again, super high risk. Even he admitted, hey, this was probably going to fail. Other companies say, hey, we don't want to go all in and just go into the unknown, risks be damned. We want to be a little bit more discretionary on how we're approaching growth. And we want to do this in a way that might attract a more risk-averse investor. So if you're investing in consumer brands, if you're investing in really large tech companies, if you're investing in retailers, these are companies that are more mature in their life cycle, and they've got kind of strong brands in place. They've got protections from competitors in place. They're not going to bet the farm on what's going to happen in the next two or three years. And so they might be paying out a rising dividend. You know, Vail Resorts is a perfect example. There's not going to go out there and be all of a sudden another Aspen, another Vail Resorts that just pops out of nowhere. And there's a mountain in the middle of Nebraska tomorrow. I mean, those are structurally in place. You can't replicate that easily. And so companies like that, that have got season ticket holders, they kind of know what their demand looks like. They say, okay, we're going to put some money back into the business, but we're also going to share this through a dividend or through a stock buyback. Stuff like that is just as important for retirement portfolios or lower risk allocations of someone's portfolio. And so to your question of, of how do we think about capital allocation, I love finding the fastest growing companies that are out there. I love finding the most innovative companies that are out there. That is what I am just very passionate about doing. But even I would never put 100% of my portfolio into high growth companies. You know, you've got to be able to sleep at night. And at the end of the day, investing is meant to unlock your personal financial goals. For me, personal financial goals include putting my kids through college. And I do not want to tell them, hey, I, I screwed up and I made the wrong call and now we lost all our money. So capital allocation, again, full circle back to your question. It's personal for everybody. We recognize that investing is personal for everybody. But I would recommend investors at least consider investing in companies that match their own allocation expectations and their own personal goals for what they want to achieve in the future. When it comes to your investing, how do you define risk? In academia, a lot of times it's defined as volatility. And I don't necessarily agree with that. And so I'm curious to hear when you are thinking about portfolio allocation, what are you looking at as your risks and how are you defining that? Risk is the chance of a permanent impairment of capital for a company. It's not volatility. Volatility is in ups and downs. If you go from $100 to $200 in an investment and over, over a 10-year period, it doubles over 10 years, but you're committed to 10 years. Do you care if it goes up to $300 and then drops to $25 and then eventually goes up to $200? You really don't. It doesn't matter if you're a 10-year investor, if it goes in a straight line or if it goes up and down all over the place. That's volatility. Risk is when a company screws up and impairs the capital that never comes back. Risk is, you know, Altria investing in Juul for vaping. And they realized after they made this ridiculously overvalued acquisition of a vaping company that had all sorts of regulatory risks involved about them appealing to minors and how they were advertising and just all this other stuff, they wrote off what was it, an $11 billion acquisition? over a course of like 18 months. I forget the specifics, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it was a lot of zeros on the check that they wrote that they just wrote down. And shareholders will never get that back. I mean, they could have paid that as a dividend and that would have been a better use of capital. Again, capital allocation is tricky. They thought they were making the right moves and doing the right thing for their shareholders at the time, but that was an impairment that you don't get back permanent. Investors in Altria suffered from that move. That was a risk that they didn't consider enough. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break 
and were staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. I think that capital allocation and risk management are topics that aren't discussed as often as they should be. You know, we live in a time where many retail investors are taking on more risk and they might think that because a company's stock has performed very well over the past couple of years or maybe even the past couple of months or so, they think that that will continue. So they extrapolate that into the future, which might lead to investors taking on too much risk. Additionally, many retail investors haven't seen a downturn in the markets outside of March 2020, so they don't know what it feels like to lose a substantial amount of their portfolio's value. And I definitely believe it is a topic that should be discussed more. One thing we wanted to do more on the Millennial Investing Podcast is talk about individual stocks. And today we are going to cover a firm. Could you give us an overview of what a firm does and why you are excited about this company? The reason I'm excited is because it's got Max Levchin as the CEO. And uh, he is a guy that anyone who's familiar with him was the CTO of PayPal that turned it into the largest uh, digital processor of payments in America's internet. You know, this was something that people were not just moving money bank to bank anymore. Now, all of a sudden, you had websites. They needed to do commercial transactions online. You wanted to make this as seamless and as simple as possible. And so it was kind of tied to email addresses and people just kind of set up these digital wallets that we take for granted today. But remember, back in the year 2000, 2005, this was a really big deal. And he had a problem with fraud. PayPal in its earliest days had all these bots that were just trying to game the system and get access to people's money and do fraudulent transactions. It would put money from one account into another and nobody would see what was going on behind the curtain. And so Max Levchin, brilliant as he was, found a way to contain the fraud, to detect the outliers and the anomalies in these transactions. And of course, PayPal now fixed it. You know, they're the most trusted way still globally, probably, uh, to digitally send money and to process the payments for those. But Levchin did a lot of that work. And he really is kind of, in my mind, the expert still detecting those anomalies. 
And he went on and he's, this was years ago. The reason I said that he's a reason I followed a firm so close is I followed him, I, I guess it was, oh, I would want to say three or four years ago, I saw him at a financial conference that he was really pushing for transparency in consumer lending. He really had problems with credit cards and he didn't like that in America, credit cards were racking up $125 billion a year in interest payments. And then on top of that, another $15 billion a year in late fees or in fees you didn't see coming as a consumer. And this is why banks are like the most hated industry, right? Behind cable companies. <laughs> I mean, consumers probably hate banks the most. They say, oh gosh, look at the fees I got charged, or you know, look at how much I have to pay for my credit cards. Of course, it's been crippling for some people that can't get out of credit card debt. It's just kind of this terrible connotation for this whole industry. And Max kind of said, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. Finance can be a way to unlock opportunities for people to buy the things that they want and they need, as long as we don't do bad behaviors. And as long as we're not just putting a sledgehammer on people for taking out loans they shouldn't have taken out, predatory loans or getting credit cards in people's hands that shouldn't have them in the first place. But he was saying, what if we just were to transparently report all the interest payments and all the fees that you would be paying completely upfront? You know, what if we didn't have to go out and say, ah, late fee, I got you again. You know, you got to pay us this much money now and create this hatred. What if we can create a better way? And so he was talking about installment plans and it would have to be paid with a debit card, not a credit card. And he said, okay, let's start a firm to be this company that if you wanted to go out and buy a Peloton, or if you wanted to go out and book a flight, or you wanted to go out and buy something that costs a couple hundred dollars, maybe you didn't have that right away, but you could pay it over time. And we could see you're not one of these outliers who's not going to pay it back over time. A firm could lend money to those people and they would be willing to take the credit risk because they could detect the outliers and they could do this much better than any of the banks could do by themselves. And so a firm wisely goes out and says, hey, Max, we want you to be the, uh, not only the founder, but the CEO of a firm. There's kind of an industry now that's being called buy now, pay later, which is fulfilling that vision that Max Lepchin really had years ago. And it's kind of, at the end of the day, an alternative when you are clicking the checkout button of any transaction that you're making online, you've traditionally had, you can buy this with a credit card, you can buy this with PayPal, you can buy this with a debit card, or hey, look, you've got a now, a buy now, pay later option that's now available. You're starting to see that find its way into Amazon, into several different merchants, into Shopify. You know, The largest e-commerce providers out there are waking up to the opportunity that buy now, pay later as unlocked. I think that Affirm is the front runner, in my opinion, in this space. So like you mentioned, the buy now, pay later concept is an interesting idea as it extends to the concept of financing purchase of items. I didn't really think about how it's a competitor to credit cards like you had mentioned. So, you know, it seems like a relatively simple concept that some of these large companies should, I would think, should be able to build out. So what is a firm's competitive advantage and why would companies like Target, Walmart, why would they want to partner with a firm rather than just build that out themselves? First, let's understand how they're making money, how how a firm's business model is structured, which is they're getting money from two different ways. One, they're getting money from the interest payments that they disclose transparently to anybody who, who makes a purchase, right? So we go on, we buy a Peloton bike, we use buy now, pay later, and we say, okay, this is going to cost a couple thousand dollars, but I'm going to pay it off over the next 24 months. This is exactly how much I'm going to be paying in principal and in interest on each one of those payments. Same as a mortgage, right? This is a consumer product mortgage that we've created here. And so a firm is getting money from me as a consumer who buys a Peloton bike. Peloton is excited to work with a firm too, because it's a new option that might unlock another type of consumer that might not have said, hey, I got a couple thousand dollars. I'll just go out and buy this bike or I'll put it on my credit card. Hey, if I can finance or if I can pay this in installments from a firm over a couple of years, maybe that's a consumer they didn't have access to before. And the other thing that's really interesting for them, and by the way, you know, they're going to pay between three and five to six percent of the cost as a rebate to a firm for every purchase. Firm gets a percentage of the gross volume of the purchase that is made from a retailer. They take that because they take on the payments. They take on the risk of the consumer not paying it back. But the interesting piece of this you know, is that there's a lift. The interesting part for the retailers of why they would want to work with a firm versus somebody else like Afterpay versus somebody else you know, that's a smaller buy now, pay later option is because a firm has got an app now that has got access to that consumer and saying, hey, I saw that you bought a Peloton bike. Maybe you want to be in an active lifestyle. You know, We kind of know a little bit about you because of the purchase. Do you want to buy from Lululemon? 
you know, we've identified, maybe we think that you might be interested in this other vendor that we represent. And it might have an offer for, you know, 5%, 10% off you buy something from them. Now, all of a sudden, those retailers, rather than building it out themselves, have got access to the X million accounts that a firm has that might get them even more and more business from people who are buying responsibly from them and are going to pay back over time. So it takes the risk off of their hands. They don't have to worry about people not paying it back. That's a firm's problem now. Uh, They have to pay a little bit in percentage off of the gross volume for that. But it's also getting more and more revenue for them. They're getting a lift because the firm's got a, a pool of people that might want to do business with them. For investors that are monitoring a firm's business performance, what are the key performance indicators that they should be looking at to determine if the company is successfully executing as a business? I mean, the first is the partnerships that you've seen, right? Who's winning the big name partnerships? One of the things with the firm is we saw them working with Peloton. We saw them working with Expedia. We saw them working with Shopify. Just recently, they've announced an agreement with Amazon. You know, it's going into retailers like Target now. I mean, stuff like that is really exciting to see the biggest companies in the world partnering with them. And so I think we should continue to monitor who's winning those relationships. The other part that's interesting that's a little bit less followed is the net promoter scores. This is the happiness of the consumers that have a firm as an app. And again, it gets back to that lack of trust that they're trying to fix. At the end of the day, net promoter scores were really, really low for companies like Goldman or you know, companies like Wells Fargo, who you know, consumers like, wait a minute, you've taken advantage of me. I feel slimy doing business with these kinds of companies. A firm had a net promoter score, the last that I checked, was 78, which is very high. That's right up there with Tesla. That's right up there with Apple. These are consumers that want to do business with these companies. And so as you see other options, if you're an early runner, you know, you're an early adopter of a firm and they've taken care of you and you're really happy with them, are you going to leave and go with somebody else? If a firm's giving you more options with more partnerships with more companies and they take care of you and you're very happy, no, you're going to stay. I mean, you're going to see really, really high retention rates. And of course, that's really important as consumers use them for more and more purchases over the next years and decades to come. Yeah, that totally makes sense to me. Earlier, you had brought up Max Levchin, who also stood out to me when I did some research on a firm. He was a former co-founder of PayPal, and now he is the founder and CEO of a firm. I'm curious, are founder-led companies something you look for when researching companies to invest in? Yes, that's very important. I don't think it's even as important to be founder-led or have the founder be the CEO or even the operational side of it. I think you have to follow the talent in the industry. Right? So legend is such a fascinating story, Clay. Like, If I can go a little bit off script on this and just tell the background, I mean, he was born in Ukraine. Right. And as a small boy, a gifted computer programmer, from even as a young age, then Chernobyl hits and he has to evacuate the city and go out to a small cottage in a rural area where he is writing algorithms on pieces of paper and then brings them back years later to do programming when he has access to a computer again. I mean, his mind is functioning on a different planet, right? Who can do that? There are not that many people that are as gifted as Max is at doing those kinds of things. And that's why he becomes. CTO of PayPal, you know, CEO of a firm. When you talk to him, as I got a chance to chat with him in person, people like that are very rare. Elon Musk is very rare. And there's a reason that Tesla is so successful. Not everybody can do that. So you've got to follow, you know, who is it that really stands out from the rest of the herd? And it's going to be the one in a thousand, one in a million founder that everybody else is fighting it out. But who's really doing something that nobody else is either looking at or is afraid to do? Who's brave enough to go out there and and completely disrupt an industry? It's challenging, but the companies that do it really well and have got founders or at least people on board that are pushing those companies forward with a tailwind are going to get ahead of the pack. And for investors, we want to find those kinds of companies that have as an advantage. Continuing with this buy now, pay later kind of idea, one of my biggest positions for the last few years has been Square. And I did an episode months ago now about Square. I did a deep dive into it. And a lot of people that listened to the episode were really interested in that episode. I got a lot of really good feedback about it. So I think there's a lot of people that would be interested to hear your opinion on how Square entered the buy now, pay later space with their acquisition. And just some general thoughts you have about that, whether they should have built it, whether it's good for Square to enter this industry. And of course, I'm interested in hearing your opinion as well, selfishly with Square being my largest position. 
It's an amazing company. I mean, you can't downplay Jack Dorsey as a visionary guy, right? He wants to become an ecosystem for everything that does digital banking, digital financial services, digital anything. He wants Cash App to be the go-to. Right, Robert, you can buy cryptocurrencies on Cash App now. You can buy Bitcoin. He's the guy that's like, okay, NFTs, right? We've talked about non-fungible tokens a lot. Well, everyone else is trying to figure out what the heck is an NFT. Jack Dorsey has already gone out and made a $300 million acquisition of title and is bringing recording artists on board and wants them to use his platform to do this. And Cash App, he wants, again, to kind of be a lot of things that is really innovative at the end of the day. And he's ahead of the curve. He always is. So Afterpay, $29 billion acquisition is really to put one more large base of consumers on what Square is building. He wants people that are embracing buy now, pay later. He's got some early adopters of people that have already worked with them, but he paid $30 billion because he sees the potential of what this looks like over the next 5, 10, and 20 years. And that's going to expand and they're going to make more purchases and Cash App's going to be their go-to pretty soon because they're going to say, oh, wow, I didn't realize I could do all this with Square. Man, look at this. Now it's recommending I can pay with Bitcoin. I've never bought a Bitcoin before. Why don't I use Cash App to buy some Bitcoin and then use that to pay for anything that I'm buying from these merchants? Those pools get larger and larger from the merchant pool and the consumer pool. You can see where this is going. I mean, the money, a lot of people were criticizing the premium that he paid for that, saying $30 billion was way too expensive. Why didn't he just build it from scratch? Well, yeah, but then he's got to go out and get all those people and convince them to use what he's built from scratch. Maybe he could do it. He probably could. Jack Dorsey is a smart guy. Or he could pay a premium to go out there and get ahead of everybody else and be the leader in a field that he recognizes is going to have a whole lot of potential. Don't forget, Jeff Bezos did the same thing. When he went out and he bought, what was it, 2012? When was it that he bought Kiva Robotics, right, for $775 million to have these cute little robots spinning around in his warehouses? And everybody's saying, wait, Jeff, what the heck are you doing spending that much money? This is just a technology. They don't even have a commercial presence. You're buying a science project for almost $800 million of our capital. And of course, now you see he's deployed it everywhere. <laughs> Amazon's saving, I think, $15 billion a year in logistical costs because they have the robots doing stuff that people were doing before. I mean, visionary leader that's willing to pay a premium for something that's not well understood by the rest of the industry, and all of a sudden they get a head start on everybody else. You've got to respect that as a growth style investor. It's not quite robots, but I did go into a store recently where you swipe your credit card to get in, grab whatever you want off the shelves, and then you walk out and it just somehow knows what you purchased. And I believe that was implemented and brought to life by Jeff Bezos and Amazon. So it's interesting to be able to connect the business and investing side where we can analyze and see what Jeff's doing with those types of things and then actually see it implemented in the real world. I just did that last week. So it was really top of mind for me. Robert, just wait till the next phase of it too, which is biometrics, right? Rather than swiping your credit card, it'll do an eye scan and a fingerprint scan to know exactly who you are. So there's not going to be a fraud if somebody's stealing your credit card. Yeah. The future of technology and fintech is incredible. People ask me all the time if I'm worried about the lightning network and strike and things like that against Square. And of course, that's a, a big concern, but there's things like this that you're mentioning that are just are really exciting as well. So it's going to be interesting to watch play out. And Simon, as always, like you did in the previous episodes, you provided a ton of knowledge. I really enjoyed the episode. I know the audience is as well. For anyone that wants to connect with you further after the show, where's the best place to go find you? Well, we're at seveninvesting.com. Thank you for the chance, by the way, Robert, both to be on this podcast and also talk a little bit about what we're building. Uh, seven investing, we kind of have it structured that we want it to be educational. We want to go out there and you know talk about these fun things going on in the stock market and have a place that people can share ideas. And our podcast, just like yours, we try to go out there and get a lot of perspectives on that stuff. But then the subscribing, the you know, if you if you do take the leap of faith and, and subscribe to seven investing, we have seven recommendations every month for people to consider. But we also have a monthly check-in with the advisors. We call it a subscriber call which is really a safe place you can actually ask us about the recommendations. So you said, hey, Simon, you, know, you mentioned the ad tech company. First of all, you, you go out and you see what it is. You read the report and you say, ah, I've got some interesting questions about that. Hey, Simon, what do you think about A, B, and C? We kind of think of investing as a long-term journey, a very personal journey, but you should have an opportunity to interact with the people that are making the recommendations. And we want to be available and engaging and have a safe place that's valuable for people to say, hey, can you talk a little bit more about this? I didn't really understand that part. 
at the end of the day, we don't want people just kind of blindly saying YOLO, diamond hands. I read about something somewhere on Twitter. I forgot where, but I put all my money into it. I want it to be much more methodical where people are saying, okay, I'm ready to take some risk this month. What's Seven Investing's high risk company? And how can I better understand that before I actually take the plunge and, and buy shares? And that's kind of what we're trying to build. We're long-term buy and hold investors and uh, we're having a lot of fun. Here at TIP, we are typically more value focused, but I've become a bit more interested in growth. And if you're listening to this show and you're interested in growth style investing, I want to make sure that you're using reliable, trustworthy resources. And that's why I like to bring Simon on the show. If you want to learn about growth, Simon is one of the best places to go to check that out. So I highly recommend you check out anything that Simon is working on, him and his team are building. I'll put a link to everything he has going on in the show notes below for anybody that's interested. As always, Simon, thanks so much for joining me and Clay. Robert and Clay, thanks very much for having me. I had a great time. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin. And every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.